and for the kids who are in kindergarten through second grade. So one of the things we're going to offer to help them as we acclimate to getting settled in, the kids kindergarten through second grade, If uh, we're going to have story time. So Michael and Bethany Allen are going to be leading the story time, and uh, our story, we're going to be walking through the Pilgrim's Progress. So if you're kindergarten through second grade, uh, you can go with them. For kids who are a little older, third grade and up, one of the things to help you uh, engage and focus, we have these wonderful little children's bulletins. So make sure you grab one of the kids' bulletins. They have all types of fun things uh, in there. And then some questions and some fill-in-the-blanks about the sermon. And uh, there's a rumor there might be some prizes and things in your class if you uh, fill them all out. So you want to make sure you grab one of those. And uh, for everyone else, we're going to be in uh, Exodus. And we're going to look at a couple different places this morning. Our goal this morning is to orient ourselves to the book and kind of get a big picture view of what Exodus is all about. Now, if you are uh, in the process or maybe thinking about a career change, you know, one possible career you might want to think about, but maybe it's not the best time actually, but you can think about maybe being a Hollywood screenwriter. A script writer. I mean, currently the script writers and the Actors Guild, you know, they're on strike. So they're not too satisfied with their payments. But uh, every so often, uh, the kids will punish Cynthia and I by forcing us to watch some show. And I'll think, who is writing these things? Like, are they robots or are they, they humans? Surely I could do a better job than that. And you start looking at kind of the career path. I mean, it's not a bad job if you can get it. Kind of entry level, you know, you're making about $65,000 a year. Kind of the, the goal is to get on. Uh, now, this is all kind of pre-streaming days. So streaming has just put everything in flux. But before this, the goal was trying to get on just kind of a standard show that had about 26 episodes in the season. Uh, you would make, you'd be one of a number of writers. You'd make about $2,500 per episode. But the, the goal, the, or the next step, once you got your foot in the door was to become one of the writers on one of the established shows. So, for example, like The Simpsons, they uh, every show they have six different screenwriters, and they all make $10,000 per show and uh, do about 25 <clears throat> of them per year. And then the goal is eventually work your way up where you're doing movie scripts. Now, it was a little hard to track down some of the numbers on how much you can make writing movie scripts, but a couple of so, slightly older movies. I don't know if you remember that smash hit, Bad Dog. <laughs> Dale Lawner was a script writer for that, and he got $3 million for that script. Uh, a Knight's Tale. Brian Hedgeland got $2.5 million for that. If you remember Panic Room, David Kopp got paid $3 million uh, for writing that. So, I mean, if you can get that job, it's not that bad of a, bad of a job. Now, what the scriptwriters do say is that we're in a uniquely challenging time for scriptwriters, not only because of streaming and all of uh, those things, but because the, the two most popular genres right now are the two most difficult to write a script for. So they say the most difficult scripts to write are superhero movies and then Bible movies, movies with biblical characters. Because they both have really passionate fan bases who have strong opinions about the characters. So, for example, after Russell Crowe did his Noah movie, he vowed never again to do a biblical character. And then in about 2010, Steven Spielberg wanted to do an epic 
uh, epic uh, movie uh, version of Exodus. So you have like the Charleston Heston, you know, kind of the classic Ten Commandments that at one time, you know, for like a decade, it was like the most popular movie in America. And so Steven Spielberg wanted to do another big epic. Um, it was Warner Brothers who set aside $150 million for the budget. But they had a hard time coming to consensus on the script. So eventually, uh, Steven Spielberg, uh, they, uh, uh, he eventually uh, kind of put the project down, or he stepped off of the project because they couldn't kind of agree on the script. Um, Ang Lee picked it up, he made Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and he had just done The Hulk in 2003. So uh, he picked it up, couldn't come to consensus on the script. Then eventually, Ridley Scott took it over, who did Gladiator. And he wanted Russell Crowe to be Moses, but he, he's done with biblical. So he got Christian Bale, who at the same time was working on the Dark Knight trilogy. So he stepped in the, the two worst worlds, Bible and superhero. And then they did the movie of Gods and Kings. I don't know if, I, this is not a movie recommendation, so I, I wouldn't. Uh, I don't know if I'd recommend it, but uh, they talked about the difference between Spielberg, uh, uh, Ridley Scott talked about how hard it was to kind of come to consensus on what the movie was actually going to be about, because Steven Spielberg wanted to really stick close to the source material, the, the Bible as the actual text for the movie. But, but the problem was that if you look at the way the Bible structures Exodus, like chapters 1 through 15, or maybe up to uh, 17, are just filled with all this energy and excitement. I mean, this is worthy of a movie. I mean, you have an epic showdown between, you know, gods and kings and Pharaoh and Moses and slavery and liberation. And then it's like all of the action just comes to this screeching halt. And from chapter 19 all the way to 40, and actually if you read the whole Pentateuch as a whole, from Exodus 19 all the way to Numbers 11, the entire center of the Pentateuch, they are all just at Mount Sinai, at the mountain. And they are receiving extended architectural plans for how to build the tabernacle, Extended plans on the roles of the daily, weekly, yearly sacrifices, how to go about the business. And the idea was like, all right, this, you can't have a movie that has all this action in the beginning and then, like, it's all house plans at the end. And you think about it, why? Like, does God just not know how to tell a very good story? And see, maybe what's theatrically bad is theologically powerful. And important. Might not be good theatrics, but it's excellent theology because actually the point of all of the action is the presence. All the building plans for the tabernacle are not secondary boring material. That's the point. And so we're going to spend some time going through uh, Exodus. And we're going to look at it kind of in these contexts of one of our themes that we started this past month of we want to be a God-centered church, which is all of our commitments are oriented around who God is and what he's called us to be. And some of those in worship as we seek his face. Discipleship, we want to grow in his grace, become more like his son. And then service, we want to serve his people, serve his world. And that movement in Exodus, you see all three of these. What does it mean to seek my face and come into my presence? What does it mean to be transformed into my likeness, grow in my grace? And what does it mean to serve my people and serve my world? So kind of one of the key big ideas in Exodus is that God has revealed himself 
And he uh, wants us to respond appropriately to how he has revealed himself. So this morning, we're just going to kind of orient to the book so we can get a sense of right, where, where is it going, what are some of the big ideas, and then we'll dive in next week. So let's begin and let's think about, all right, what's the theme the theme and kind of the dramatic tension. So they're right to want to make this a movie. It could be a wonderful, but there's dramatic tension. But what's the theme and the drama? So if you have your Bibles, look at chapter 6. And we'll look about verses 1 through 8. We're going to jump around to a couple of different places just to try and get a sense of, all right, what's this book all about? So one of the, the big themes of the book is the Lord's commitment to make himself known, known to his people, known to the nations, known to the world, to make himself known. In fact, one of the uh, things that the way you'll kind of get the most out of this sermon uh, series or will be in Exodus in some shape and fashion, kind of from now, we're going to take a small break and look at Philippians during Advent and the Christmas season, and then come back to Exodus to the end of the, the school year. And the way you'll get the most of it is just kind of read the book in big kind of chunks. And one fabulous little reading assignment is take maybe a red pen. And every time you see the phrase, uh, so that you may know, and you just mark it, and then you go back and it'll amaze you because you'll have markings every page, sometimes every, every other sentence, every paragraph, so that you may know. They, this is the, the, the recognition formula. So much happens, the, the, the energy, the thrust of the book is so, so that you may know that I am the Lord your God, maker of heaven and earth. So let's pick up in six. This kind of summarizes. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God said to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. So this is the key. Who is the Lord? I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So they're going to learn something new about who he is and what he's going to do. He says, I established my covenant with them. So they knew that I was a God who establishes covenant and makes promises to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from, the slavery, from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and these great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into this land that I swore to give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So the big theme is, who is this Lord? The, the recognition formula. God's primary desire in this book is to make himself known, that he is the ruler over all, that he's the redeemer of those who call out to him, and he wants us to be in relationship with him. He will be made known among his people and then through them among the nations. So that's kind of the, the, the recognition formulas all throughout the book, so that you may know. But then let's see with some of the drama. Look back at chapter in chapter 5. 
Start in verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So here's the drama. So Pharaoh saying, Who is the Lord? I should obey him. I don't know him. So this is the theme. He will be made known. He will be known. And so Pharaoh's kind of question at least sets the drama up for the first 15 chapters of the book, the drama of Exodus. And this is not a, an atheistic question like, who is the Lord? Does he exist? This is a jurisdiction question. It's a question of, okay, see, in, in the ancient world, it was a polytheistic world, and you had different gods who were in charge of different locations. So what Pharaoh is saying is, look, you may have the Lord, and that's fine for your little circle in Goshen for where the Hebrews live, but this is Egypt. And here in Egypt, I am in charge. I am the Lord. I don't receive demands. I give them. I don't have to obey his voice. And so, you know, our world in some sense is similar to that world. So they lived in a world that was polytheistic in each kind of location you had different gods. Our world, we kind of have it multiplied by about six billion. Because not in each town you have different gods, it's just each individual. No one will tell me I am the boss of me. You know, every kid on the playground at some point has told their sibling or somebody, you're not the boss of me. And that's exactly what Pharaoh is saying to the Lord. Now, it's one thing. We've actually had to talk to our kids. Okay, there, there are certain people you don't have to obey. That is your sister. You do not have to obey her. But you know who, you know who is the boss of you? So learning, who is the boss of me? And that's one of the lessons, big lessons. So that sets up the tension. You're going to know that this is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he will be um, honored. He'll be exalted. Now, the way we're going to move through the book, there's a couple different ways you could break down uh, the book. And I think the way we're going to move through it is in Exodus, there's a geographical movement that we're going to use to illustrate the, the theological truth. For the point. So in chapters 1 through 13, they're in Egypt. They're in Egypt and they're in bondage. They're groaning. They're crying out. And then starting from 14 to, to 19, they're moving out of Egypt through the wilderness. And then from chapter 20 to 40, they're at Sinai. So we're going to kind of move in each of those three directions. And in each location there's a unique lesson that the Lord wants them to know. I want you to know when you're in bondage that I am the Lord your God who delivers you. That's going to be the big lesson in 1 through 13. And then as they move out of Egypt and into the wilderness, the great question is, all right, who is the Lord? Will he protect and provide for me? And he says, I want you to know that through the wilderness, I am the Lord your God who will direct you. I'll direct you. And then as they come to Sinai in chapter 20, he says, what you need to know is I am the Lord your God 
who desires to dwell with you. So three big lessons. The Lord is our deliverer, the Lord is our director, and the Lord who dwells with us. So let's take a little overview of those. With chapters 1 through 13, the Lord who delivers us. And you can flip over a couple pages if you have your Bibles open or swipe down, however you have it oriented. And uh, look in chapter 1, because this will kind of... Um, you know, in order to kind of get into some of the drama of Exodus, there's a couple of Hebrew words you'll need to know that uh, there's a lot of kind of play on these, these words. And one of them is the word for service or work or worship. It's avod. And it's the Hebrew, you can translate it work, you can translate it service, or you can translate it worship. And this will be a really important concept, you know, how those things are linked you know, in some ways, even when we call this the worship service, it's kind of like in Hebrew, that would be redundant. They like say worship, worship, service, service, worship, service. They're the, they're the same thing. Now, you can kind of get at the, you can kind of feel this. Uh, sometimes that's a nightmare just for English translators because you've got to think, all right, well, like it could be work, it could be service, it could be worship. Like which one, which one do you do? Look at chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Uh, Pharaoh's, we're going to look at this more next week, but he started the, uh, <coughs> the, process of putting the Israelites, they've grown too big, they're too mighty, too dangerous, so we have to oppress them. So start in verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel, now here's a, a vote, work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard work, a vote, service, and in mortar and in brick and all kinds of work, service, in the field and in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work. So you get this idea of work, service, or worship. Now even think, what would it be like to translate like that, worship? So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel worship as slaves. It made their lives bitter with hard worship. In mortar and brick and all kinds of worship in the field and all their worship, they ruthlessly made them worship. You see why it's hard for translators, but it's that same concept. And this actually goes back to the garden in Genesis chapter 2 where God made Adam and Eve and he placed them in the garden to, to work, to worship. And one of the tensions of this whole book is, all right, in Egypt, they're in bondage in what was in, originally intended to be liberating and freeing and the kind of the reason for your existence has now been uh, corrupted and exploited. And the question is, all right, you're going to work, you're going to worship, you're going to serve someone. It's either going to be someone like Pharaoh who will exploit you or it will be someone like the Lord who will liberate you. Who are you worshiping? Who are you serving? And what this whole section, this section on deliverance, salvation, this gets at the very heart of what real freedom is. So listen to the sermon this past week that um, Tim Keller did. The, it was the year anniversary of 9-11 in 2002. And it was interesting because that Sunday they were kicking off a new series on the book of Exodus. And there was a couple of stories that really struck me. One, he told the story about his wife, Kathy, who came to faith, I think in a college ministry, um, maybe at Bucknell or Cornell, I can't remember uh, kind of where they were. And this was in the 60s, and she came to faith, and you know, she would tell her friends that she was a Christian now. And they'd just be shocked, like, 
like, how could this happen to you? We thought you had a brain. And she would say, this, oh, well, I'm not that kind of Christian. I'm not one of the born-again ones, not like Billy Graham. And she was so embarrassed by the concept of sin and salvation. She told us it wasn't until in, in kind of years later where they realized, oh, that, that, that concept is really talking about the dynamic of freedom. And that you're going to be a slave to something. And what Exodus, the first section, teaches us is that real freedom is not no masters. That's impossible. And then real freedom is not to be your own master, because that's just tyranny by another name. Real freedom is the true master of the living Lord who will set you free. So part of the narrative tension is you will work, you will serve under one of the masters. It will either be someone like Pharaoh that's a tyrant, or it will be the Lord who is to liberate and empower. So here, the lesson that God wants us to learn is that he is our savior, deliverer, where true freedom can be found. And one of the things that this gets at is kind of the, the, the heart of the sin that's under a lot of the external behaviors that we do. When I was at our church in Alabama, you know, when we arrived there, it was celebrated its 179th year of existence. And one of the fun things for, you know, those historically inclined is there was a couple of historians who had kept really detailed records of the church uh, all the way through about, uh, those 179 years. And it was fascinating going back because, like, in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, you know, they took things like church discipline really seriously. And every month of the deacons meetings, there'd be a different member who was kind of brought up on some type of church disciplinary uh, action. And it was really intriguing to read the different offenses, you know. Uh, actually, one of the most often ones was uh, spousal abuse. And then drinking was one, card playing, dancing. It's kind of humorous one was the size of the women's hats. So this is a problem in the 1920s is women were wearing hats that were too big and too ostentatious and the people behind them couldn't see. So come on, ladies, control the size of your hats. Desecration of the Sabbath was one. But you know, one that was never mentioned was idolatry. Then you start thinking like idolatry is the fuel, it's the root, it's the heart that's fueling all those other things. And one of the things we'll see in, in Exodus is it's only in the context of either bondage or battle that you really learn that God is our ultimate deliverer. He's our savior. So kind of the first lesson of the whole book of Exodus is that your, kind of your journey to liberation, your own exodus out of slavery is not done until the destination is worshiping God into his presence. The tabernacle is not just an aside that we can cut off. That's the point, to bring you into a place of worship and service of the living Lord. See, all these other idols, what they promised, what Pharaoh, what Pharaoh, Pharaoh promised them, in essence, was security. But then it turned out to be slavery. And they'll promise power and they'll promise wealth. But God wants you to know that his name will be hallowed on this earth and his kingdom will come and that's the first lesson of exodus then the second major movement is the god who directs in 13 through 19 and there's uh if you have your bulletin you see there's this beautiful kind of chiastic structure because they move into the wilderness and when you're in the wilderness the questions are will he protect me 
And will he provide for me? That's what you need to know. And there's this beautiful shape. And uh, you have like chapter 14 is the question, will he protect us from Pharaoh? And then in chapter 17 to the end of 18 is, will he protect us from the Amalekites? As we travel, can't, will he protect us? And then right in the middle, it's, will he provide water? Will he provide food? Will he provide water? Will he provide? And notice water, food, water. The, the, the lessons that you have to learn that he'll protect and that he'll provide are not lessons that you learn once and then you got it. This is not like riding a bike. You forget these things daily. That's why we have to pray, give us this day our daily bread because we need to be reminded daily he will protect, he will provide. And you can only really learn those lessons in the wilderness. You know, it's one of those hard things. You know, wouldn't it be great if there, you know, there are a lot of things you don't have to learn by experience. Like sometimes we'll tell our, our kids, like just you, every scar teaches a lesson. You don't have to get the scars though. You can learn from other people's scars. But there's just some lessons that you just can't learn any other way. You think about life in the wilderness is, is that way. When our girls were like three and four, and it was a really interesting article uh, that I read. So it was about eight, nine, ten years ago, and it was called The National Pastime. And it was a satirical article, kind of tongue-in-cheek, because it said that, uh, and it was talking about kind of these high-stakes, high-pressure preschools that were popular in D.C. and uh, New York City. And the idea is that the national pastime has become to so arrange our child's life so that they would be turbocharged for success. And the idea is there's a su success conveyor belt that if we don't get them on when they're like three years old, they, like their life is over. And when we first moved here, like we felt that tension. I mean, our girls are like three and four and people are like, all right, what type of STEM exercises are you doing with them? I'm like, I, I don't know. I let them watch Curious George. Is that like, that's science, isn't it? Like, no. And she just felt like this, this, this intensity. And part of the, the author of that article, kind of in tongue-in-cheek, says when you look at history's greatest men and women, a disproportionately high percentage of them lost one of the parents before they were 12. So it's like, all right, mom and dad, are you serious about? <laughs> I don't know if you saw this week, Walter Isaacson's biography of Elon Musk came out, came out on Tuesday. It was an interesting interview I saw with Isaacson. He's you know, it's a great biographer. He's done like Steve Jobs and Leonardo da Vinci and Benjamin Franklin. And the interview said it like it seems like in all these stories, the the these geniuses had had some type of significant either tragedy or trauma in their childhood. And they said, is it possible to be great without having go gone through something like that? And he kind of laughed. He says, I wouldn't say it's a prerequisite, but it is awfully strange how many of them have had significant troubles. And so what, what does it mean to set someone up for great? And you think about, well, why is that? And we just know that it's, it's through the wilderness. That's where you get formed and fashioned. And that's what they're going to have to learn. You know, the irony of the first part of the deliverer is that Pharaoh was the one who rejected the word of the Lord. And then it came down upon him. But in the wilderness, the question now becomes, will God's people trust him? Will they trust 
his word. Will you trust him to be protector and provider? You don't know how much your life is built on sand until the storm comes. In that same sermon where Keller was talking about his year anniversary of 9-11, said one thing that happened in a lot of the churches in New York City, most of them the week following 9-11 doubled in their normal attendance. So they were averaging about 2,000 people at that time, and the next Sunday, 4,000 people came. And so a lot of people just kind of look skeptical at that and say, all right, these people, they're, they're all just going to church now out of emotional weakness. So something's happened that's emotionally weak. And he said, that's not, in his opinion, what happened at all. He says, what happened is that, he says, it's, you, you came because something you had been trusting in was wrecked. And you realize that you were building your life on a delusion. The faith you misinvested is now searching for the real thing. And that's what wilderness times do. They cause us, right, the faith I've misinvested in all these places. Now we're searching for the real thing. If the great sin of 1 through 13 that has to be dealt with is idolatry, the great sin of 14 through 19 that God will deal with is anxiety. Anxiety. So he is the God who delivers. And then he wants you to know he's the God who directs, will protect and provide. And then finally, he's the God who dwells, 19 through 40, at the foot of Sinai. This is the hardest part for the movie makers. But what, do, what does it teach us about God? Because in many ways, worship is the point. You know, the tabernacle is the point. The tabernacle was the place where heaven and, and earth reunite. Yes, it was a place in the garden where heaven touches earth, and this is the place. And one of the key themes of the, all the, the, the legal section is that obedience is the key to enjoying his presence. You are made to enter into and enjoy his presence, and obedience is the defining mark of his people. He wants you to know, I'm the Lord your God, and my will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you can see these beautiful sections of long seven-day uh, seven cycles of building the tabernacle. Actually, just re let me read the summary in chapter 40 and just hear the emphasis as it concludes. Chapter 40, then Moses did according to all that the Lord had spoken, commanded him. And this, this, this refrain will be repeated six times. And then on the seventh, he'll rest from his work. He did all the Lord had commanded him. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was built. Moses built the tabernacle. He laid his bases, set up his frames, put in the poles, raised the pillars. He spread the tent over, and it goes on in the end of 21. He set the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent on the north side of the tabernacle over the veil, and the showbread was arranged as the Lord had commanded him. He put the lampstand in the tent and opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, set up the lamps as the Lord had commanded him. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned the incense as the Lord had commanded him. On down in the end of 29, he set up the, the offered the burnt offerings and the grain offerings as the Lord had commanded him. Then they approached the altar and washed as the Lord commanded Moses. He built the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. And so Moses finished the avod, the work, the service, the worship. And then in 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory filled 
the temple. So this fiery glory of God fills the tabernacle at the end of the book. And up to this point, you kind of have the, the drama of redemption. In Genesis 1, the earth was created. And then Genesis 3, they're cast out of God's presence. And then Exodus 40, the fire descends and they're able uh, eventually to be brought back in. Paradise has been lost and piece by piece is going to be regained again. And now we live in the light of these two different shadows. You can either live under one of two shadows. In Egypt, they're under the shadow of death. But then in the tabernacle, they're under the shadow of life. So what's this, this story of Exodus? It's the story of the sovereign Lord who will rout all the powers of the enemy, who will grant his people deliverance, who will bring them to himself through the blood of the lamb, who will provide and protect for them in the wilderness, who will grace them with the gift of his law so that they can know how to live well in his word. And he will come in a fiery presence to dwell in the midst of them. This is the story. And it's better than a movie. Because it's the kind of movie you don't just watch, it's the kind of movie you live. This isn't just the story of an exodus or an ancient people. This is, can be your story. This is our story. The call is not just to see it. The call is to live it, to respond to him as Savior and repent of being your own Pharaoh and to trust him as protector and provider and obey him as the master as you live and enjoy his presence. And each week we have communion and we come to the Lord's table and uh, different elements of communion symbolize each of those things in a beautiful way. So as this week we, we remind ourselves and remember the cup is the cup of his blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is, represents the blood of the lamb that was shed to deliver us from our sins. And the bread represents his body that's broken for us and his promise that he will provide for us. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but we live on every word that comes from his mouth. And it's his promise to provide. And he calls us to his table to remind us of his desire to dwell with his people. So here at Trinity, we come and we have servers in three different places. The one in the back will be gluten-free. And uh, once the servers are in place, you come, you take the bread, let it remind you of his faithful uh, provision. Dip in the cup, let it remind you of his forgiveness. And as you come, let it remind you of his desire to dwell with you. So once the servers are in place, you come.